90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty well. Uh, just trucking through the semester. How about yourself? Oh, I'm doing pretty well, uh, too, I suppose. I'm getting ready to give a, a talk, our actual department colloquium, in a few days when this airs, actually. So I've been spending a lot of time preparing for that. It's going to be a little nerve-wracking. Uh, yeah, that sounds pretty scary. Um, I can't imagine. Did you? I know you uh, had a lot to say. Have you worked on cutting it down any yet? <laughs> yeah, so the first time I ran through it, I would say that I made it two-thirds of the way through my slides in 55 minutes, which is a little <laughs> bit long. Uh. <laughs> Don't be that guy in colloquium, man. <laughs> yeah, no, if anything, I want to run under. So exactly. I've done I've done significant cutting and think Excellent. that I'm, I, I think I'm about there. But no, we've had lots of exciting stuff going on here. Uh, the library just opened a thing called Maker Commons. Ooh. So yeah, I went to the grand opening of that. That was fascinating. Um. That's really cool. Do you guys have a lot of space in your library? Oh, the library here is massive. And they dedicated this entire section to doing multimedia. So you can go in and record yourself against a green screen or use all of these really nice facilities to do multimedia recording. Uh, that's uh, pretty awesome. I know they have a big meteorology contingent up there, so I imagine there'll be a lot of uh, demo tapes made in that space. That's kind of cool. Oh, yeah. And then they've added on now. So that's the Media Commons. And now the Maker Commons has uh, 3D printers. They have a 24 printer cluster of MakerBots. Wow. Where you can submit things to the library website and get them printed. Um, they've got a room with some electronics for people to experiment with, little bits. Uh, and then the, the wildest thing was, I guess somebody that wanted to attend the grand opening couldn't come physically, so they had a telepresence robot there. No kidding. Yes, yeah, so there was somebody that was driving this telepresent robot around and could drive up to you and see you, and you see them on the screen and say hello. It was a real-life shellbot. <gasps> That's unbelievable. I didn't know that existed. That's the creepiest slash coolest thing ever. <laughs> it, it was an interesting experience because you had no idea where this person was, but they were in some room somewhere. Wow. Wow. Did they have like a picture of them, obviously? Yeah, there was, oh. a, t there was a small TV screen or a monitor on the front. No uh, kidding. And you could see them. And there's a camera and they could see you and they could, you know, stroll up to you by driving it with their arrow keys on the computer and say hi. Wow. A Skype bot. That's yeah, that's exactly what it was. And, you know, maybe maybe I should start sending that to meetings. Uh, yeah, God. <laughs> well, you'd have to get a video of yourself so, you know, they won't know you're playing Nintendo or sleeping during the meeting. <laughs> yeah. Just, ra just randomly say, yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, but that's, that's kind of what I've been up to, I suppose. Uh, Man, what about you? That's, that's awesome. Not anywhere cool. As cool as what I've been doing. Well, I think it is. Um, so we're getting ready for our final field trip, and we've decided to go to Hot Springs, Arkansas, um, a place that's sort of near to your hometown. Not really, but in the same state. Um, so I've been doing a lot, a lot, lot, lot of reading about Hot Springs, and it sort of gave me the idea, you know, we've been doing these topical shows, and I thought maybe we could talk about springs and then Hot Springs... Hot springs in general, and then hot springs in particular, because it's a really interesting 
place in Arkansas, which is surprising. <laughs> hey, now. Uh, <laughs> Just had to throw that in. <laughs> yeah, so you were right when you said it's it's in the same state that I grew up, but actually I think OU was closer by probably yeah. a factor of two <laughs> yeah. than Hot Springs to where I grew up. Yeah, it's a it's about a six hour drive from uh, here to Hot Springs, so it's it's quite a haul. But um, I think it'll be interesting. We never really go east when we go on field trips, so um, we've got some great guys from the Arkansas Geological Survey meeting us over there and are going to show us around, which is great news for me. <laughs> so <laughs> right, but yeah, that will help a lot. <laughs> so I've actually been down there before, uh, doing some quartz crystal digging, and just some um, tourism uh, as well. Mm-hmm. I've never actually done that. Um, I hear it's super fun, though. It is. Unlike going to uh, the Diamond Pit, or Crater of Diamonds, I think it's called, you actually find things when you go ah. quartz crystal digging. Because <laughs> nobody wants quartz. Everybody wants diamonds. <laughs> right. But it's it was a ton of fun. But that's only very tangentially related to our topic today uh, yeah. of hot springs <laughs> and springs. <laughs> well, actually, uh, the quartz part is a little related, but we'll get to that when we start talking about the um, different types of rocks that you can find at hot springs. But first, we kind of have to talk about springs in general, because probably not all of our listeners have either been to a spring or know what one is at all. Yeah, and it, basically a spring is just where groundwater is flowing to the surface. Uh I- in the most simplified form. Oh, it's exactly that. It is a very simple definition, which we don't get um, often in geology, but it's the plumbing part that can get really complicated. Um, in fact, very complicated. Um, there's some really cool history of science stuff about springs. Uh, we just had a colloquium on it, actually, um, because for a long time there were big arguments. You know, springs are where water's coming out of the ground, and there was lots of argument in the like 17th, 18th, 19th century about the origin of that water and it's still actually quite problematic to understand some springs but they all start with where we store our water our groundwater which is in aquifers yeah so groundwater is uh, stored in these porous things that are generally not too far below the surface anyway if it's water that we're easily able to access and water that's going to make a spring right exactly right so aquifers are just that right underground, where we store our water. But there are lots of different ways you can store that water. I mean, it doesn't have to be. It's generally in sedimentary rocks, right? Because those have grains and spaces where we can stick water. Um, but yeah, not and, always. And those spaces are called porosity, right? They're pores or pore space. And a lot of sandstones have high porosity that can be, you know, 30 plus percent. It, exactly, right? Uh, no more than over I think 48 or something and then it's not a rock anymore and it's just sand but um you're, you're exactly right so you can have a lot of really high percent of space in rocks and you know sometimes we store stuff like oil in these spaces or really salty water if you're down deep enough but right at the surface like you just said um are where our aquifers are and this is where you know we drill a well like a city will drill a well into an aquifer at the surface you know sometimes a thousand feet deep even and that's where all your city water comes from. Um, but it's not just sandstones. It's another formation, too, and that's limestones. Because in limestones, you can make one of your favorite geologic features, which is caves. Yeah. And we just talked about that recently. Exactly. So we'll, we'll link that show in. But, yeah, you can store massive amounts of water. In fact, I think in that show I talked about there were some caves that you actually paddled through in a kayak. Oh, so terrifying. Um <laughs> Exactly. So I think when we talk about aquifers, a lot of people do 
visualize like underground lakes of water and you know oftentimes aquifers are just those little spaces in between sand grains in a rock uh like the aquifer here in norman um is in the garber sandstone you know so it's these little spaces in between rocks but caves can store a lot of groundwater and um consequently when that groundwater intersects the surface that's where you get these springs um, you don't have to just have sedimentary rocks too. You can have igneous rocks or metamorphic rocks, but you still need space to put that in, which is hard with all those interlocking crystals. So in those types of aquifers, you have to have a lot of fractures. Another thing near and dear to you. <laughs> yeah. So big cracks can obviously store quite a bit and it, it may sound crazy that we're talking about storing water in cracks or spaces between grains and sandstone. And that's where all of our, uh, city water, like Shannon was saying, generally comes from. But there's a lot of space in those rocks and a massive amount of them below you. Right. So groundwater provides almost two-thirds of the freshwater resources that we use, um, not just as people, but as livestock and for agriculture. So, you know, 66.6 repeating percent of our fresh water is below us, which is a bunch. <laughs> and so sometimes that finds its way to the surface, and that's where we get these really cool springs. And this is a really good example, springs are, of where, you know, interesting geologic places are also, you know, really tied to humans, like, way back, like, thousands of years ago, right? Because this was a great fresh water source that just sprung from the ground. And even more modern places, like hot springs, you know, literally sprung up <laughs> around <laughs> these, these water resources um, in the form of springs. Yeah, and springs, actually, you mentioned the plumbing. Where the water goes on its way to the surface can modify the water quite a bit. So it could get warm in the case of hot springs, or as it's flowing through rocks, it can actually change the chemistry of the water based on what minerals may be dissolving into the water or precipitating out of the water into the rocks, right? Exactly. And so these are sort of the categories of springs. And oftentimes, you know, you'll buy spring water um, from grocery stores and stuff, but that has to be water, spring water. That's pretty fresh. Um, usually sandstones and limestones can act as sort of a natural filter for water. And so some of this water you can just drink straight from the ground, but some of it, if you've ever been sort of in these places, you know, Yellowstone or heck even springs around hot springs, some of them smell kind of weird. <laughs> um, we've got a really good example of that in Sulphur, Oklahoma, so you can guess what mineral is precipitating in that spring. Um, and it all has yeah. to do... <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I still make my students drink it because it's really funny, but um, <laughs> it's really gross stuff. Um, but it all has to do with the type of rock that this water flows through. You're exactly right. Um, as we know, pressure and temperature conditions very underground and those specific pt conditions will affect you know if water that is slightly acidic is flowing through limestone just like we talked about in cave creation you know you're going to dissolve a lot of stuff out of that rock and the same thing in sandstones you can have cements that get dissolved and those ions get carried along with that water and when it gets to the surface stuff changes right and if you don't think there can be a lot of mineral uh, carried, dissolved in water. Talk to somebody who has hard water problems. <laughs> hey, we have hard water here in State College, 
And actually, when we're using a hot, uh, you know, a boiling type humidifier, you have to clean out the scale pretty much every week because there's so much mineral dissolved in our water. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's super bad. Um, We have the same problems here because I have well water at my house. And so we get our water tested, you know, regularly. And it varies so much, like just depending on the seasons, it varies. And that's all, you know, has to do with these pressure and temperature conditions, right? Um, usually when this water hits the surface, whether it's hot or just, you know, ambient temperature anyway, a lot of stuff changes. The pressures change. Um, and then if you have hot springs or really superheated thermal waters, when they hit the surface, um, their PT conditions change even more so. And that usually causes the precipitation of all the weird stuff that was being carried along in the water. I mean, anywhere in Yellowstone you go you see um, these carbonates, which we'll talk a little bit about here later, you know, travertine being deposited everywhere and all kinds of really weird colors and minerals that come out of that water as it hits the ambient PT conditions. Yeah. And so how hot does a spring have to be to be a hot spring? Because in hot springs, I know they're really hot, but there has to be some kind of scientific definition, I would think. So, I was super surprised to find this out. Um, As my intro textbook told me, there is no generally accepted definition of a hot spring. Oh, okay. Well, maybe not. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, But usually, it's sort of agreed upon six to nine degrees Celsius warmer than ambient water constitutes a hot spring. So, not very much. That's not much at all, really. I mean, it's detectable, but... Not by a ton. Barely, exactly. And so, you know, some springs actually come out in the bottom of lakes and things like that. So you might not even be able to tell the um, if those springs are hot springs or not. Um, so now, geysers are a different thing, right? These things are super, super hot, but they're not exactly springs. Yeah, there's no real constant flow of water out of a geyser. It erupts more volcanically almost, except it's water, obviously. Right, exactly, or or steam, because it's that hot. But so these hot springs, you know, six to nine degrees C warmer than ambient water. And so in hot springs, you're exactly right. They're 64 degrees Celsius. And that's 148 Fahrenheit, for those of you that speak Fahrenheit. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had to make that conversion back to Celsius because I couldn't bring myself to report it in Fahrenheit. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so that water is really hot. You see steam, you know, rising all along these pools in uh, Hot Springs, the town, all over the place. Um, so it's not, you know, too hot to touch, but it's pretty warm stuff. Yeah, and the town is actually a really interesting place because it was built around the hot springs, since that's its name, and mm-hmm. provided a significant source of tourism and economic income for them. Oh, yeah, and it still does. Um, it's a really unique national park. So Hot Springs is a national park, and it's unique in that it is. It's in the middle of town. Like, I remember the first time we visited, you know, we're like, where do we pay? Because I'm so used to, you know, Western national parks, even some Eastern ones where, you know, you go through the gate and you pay to get into the national park and there's the hot spring or there's the visitor center and that's it. But Hot Springs, it is in the town. It's in the northern part of the town of Hot Springs. Um, and it's just all the area around there, which is very hilly. We'll talk a little bit about the structure of the mountains in a minute. Um, and then all these bathhouses. 
Yeah, and so Hot Springs was actually referred to as the American Spa because <laughs> of these hot waters going into the bathhouses. Right, and so everyone came there, um, especially in the early 1800s um, and late 1800s, because these mineralized waters that were coming up were touted as, you know, healing waters. And so lots of people would pay. It's actually still quite expensive to go into the bathhouses and bathe in these waters. <laughs> um, but so there's a lot of draw and has been for a while. And so the actual visitor center is in one of these um, bathhouses and it's really amazing on the inside. It's very ornately done. You know, there's marble everywhere and stained glass and it's really cool how they've done this in that setting. It's so different than other national parks I'm used to. Yeah, and the bathhouses aren't always directly on top of the spring. Sometimes where the the spring comes up, there's a collection mechanism, and then it's piped down to this building. <laughs> yes, so that's really weird, too. If you, you know, get off of the um, really, well, you don't even have to get off of the beaten path because there's paths all over. <laughs> right. And you see these big green boxes everywhere. So there's only a few spots where you see the springs coming up sort of naturally and there's but there's these big green boxes all in a line sort of behind the bathhouse and they're spring boxes they've enclosed them so the springs can be collected and then distributed to the bathhouses just like you were saying and then to other little spots over town where you can go and actually collect the water for yourself um you know for drinking purposes or whatever yes and i who knows about, you know, the healing, supposed healing properties or anything like that. Hmm. But I will say that I can imagine getting in a basically continuously fresh hot spa not being a bad thing. Uh, exactly. Exactly. It's got to have at least some psychological healing properties for sure. Um, and, you know, you, you pay for that and it's probably worth it. It's a really cool little area. Um, the park itself also has a thing that I hadn't seen in a national park. And I'm sure this exists. So... You know, if anyone wants to tell me where another one is. Um, but they had a cell phone tour all around town. So you'd go up in the hills um, and drive these really scenic, you know, roads that they've made. And then you'd see these little signs. And you'd call a number on your phone and listen to a voice tell you about the view that you're seeing. And it would tell you about the rocks and the trees and or the historical meaning of the thing you're standing in front of. And it was super cool. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that obviously it wouldn't work out west. There's no cell phone signal most places. Yeah, that's true. But, uh, <laughs> that's probably why I've never seen it before. <laughs> but yeah, that's a neat idea, especially since you're already in town. I would wouldn't be surprised if at some point there's a like a geo triggered app, kind of like what Radio Lab does. Oh, I I bet that's that would be a good thing that would come um, for this area. Um, so it's a, a, another unique thing about selecting hot springs as a location. Because um, there's some cool rocks, which we're about to talk about, but also because it's really urban and a lot of geology that happens now, geologic mapping, has to do with mapping hazards. And so we don't really care if there's a landslide in the middle of Arches National Park where there's no trails, right? I mean, we do care, but not as much as we would care if, say, there was a landslide right that went into downtown Moab. So a lot of geologists now are occupied with mapping out hazards, human hazards. And so this urban sort of geology takes place a lot more than what I think students get to see in school. 
Yeah, that's that's definitely true because, like you said, we do care about hazards everywhere. But earthquakes, landslides, any kind of natural hazard is really becoming important for city planning, insurance purposes, all of that. So there are forensic meteorologists, and I wouldn't be surprised if at some point we have forensic geologists. Oh, there are forensic geologists and have been. I mean, Sherlock Holmes was the first forensic geologist, actually. But that's another story. That sounds like Um, another show. (laughs) Yes, it sure is. Um, There's lots of forensic geology out there, um, for sure, not to be outdone by our meteorological partners. Um, Yeah, and I know this personally because my homeowner's insurance has gone up increasingly because of our earthquake risks now here in Oklahoma. So, yes, I feel that. Um, But back to the rocks now. Um, the structure in Hot Springs is actually quite complex, as I'm sure you know growing up in western Arkansas. Um, there's some mountains out there. They're mountains. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, I mean, they're bigger than Oklahoma's mountains. Hey, they come from Oklahoma's mountains. Um, <laughs> so the mountains directly around Hot Springs are part of the bigger Washita Mountains. Um, and so the Washita Rajani, or the mountain building event that created these, happened in the late uh, Paleo- mid to late Paleozoic. Um, and that's in your geologic time scale that you should have <laughs> handy while you're listening to this show. <laughs> um, so during that time, there was a pretty significant mountain building event and the mountains that created that were created right outside of hot springs are called the zigzag mountains which well, is the coolest mountain name ever I mean, can you guess what they look like looking on the map which is linked in the show notes uh. <laughs> <laughs> exactly um it's actually really cool to look at this on the geologic map because that's exactly what it looks like it looks like some kid just drew the zigzag line uh, up and down the page a couple of different times and that's what it is and we've also linked in here a really i'm not going to say dense because it's not densely written but dense because it's a lot of pages <laughs> um link from the national park service that has a really great um geology sort of handout that's many pages talking about all the cool geology in and around hot springs and how it got there um but we had to mention that mountain building because that's an important part of why we have springs there in the first place. Okay, so yeah, in this, if you look at the geologic map in this uh, very zigzag mountain structure, there's a lot of faults. And that should immediately trigger that, depending on who you believe, faults are a conduit or a barrier to water flow or possibly both during their (laughs) lifetime. Uh, So (laughs) that should say, oh, well, maybe that's a pathway for these waters to travel along. And that could be a way that we can get older hot waters up to the surface because there aren't any shallow magma bodies to heat the water here in hot springs. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so a lot of times when we talk about hot springs, so these really superheated hydrothermal fluids like in Yellowstone, I mean, the reason is because there's magma right beneath the surface. Um, I remember going to Costa Rica and going into the thermal pools there and the whole time, because I'm a nerd like this, you know, I was like, don't you people know this is heated by magma? (laughs) And I'm like, this is awful. Get out. What if we cook like in Dante's Peak? Um, (laughs) So, but that's not the case in Arkansas. Um, Not at all, actually. And, but it does have to do with this Washita orogeny because when the Washita's were getting compressed, it actually 
caused some low-grade metamorphism. We'll talk a little bit about that, how it affected the rocks. But it developed this complex structure of which the zigzag mountains are only a small part of. Um, and that's why we have this thermal regime we have here today. So just like you said, John, there were older thermal waters that come in contact with young cool waters and those intermingle together. They flow along these faults. And when those faults intersect the surface, like they do right in the middle of that Northern part of the hot springs area in the middle of the national park, that's why you get these springs. Yeah, and so the town is actually built up directly against Hot Springs Mountain. So there's a fault that runs between the town and the base of the mountain, and there's also a fault uh, basically along the top of the mountain. But there is an observation tower built built there as well that you can go up to the top of and get a fantastic view of all of this geology. Oh, yeah, it's super cool. Um, that, there's a really great little pull out there, and you can park. Um, and it's not a hard hike to that observation tower, and it's pretty impressive. Hopefully my students aren't listening, but the cool part (laughs) is that you can actually map this fault in this really urban setting by looking at the orientation of those stream boxes we talked about earlier. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So instead of, you know, what you're looking for when you look for a fault in two different rocks is maybe offset between the different types of rocks or some kind of crushing up of the rocks or something that says, hey, maybe there's movement here. But in this case, I mean, it's all nice and grassy and you can't see any rocks, but you can see these linear stream boxes from that height lined up and you can say, oh, hey, that's the trace of the fault. It has to be because there's no other way we'd get this water to the surface. And it's pretty neat. Yeah. And then you can hike down from that. uh, So you can park close, like you said, to the observation tower, go up to the observation tower. You can take another trail down the mountain into town, go get your ice cream and check out the town a little bit and then uh, walk back up to the pullout. It's a nice little afternoon trip. Uh, It really is. Um, I will say that there's a cupcake shop down there that's been featured on a bunch of television shows that was to die for. So... I would suggest going to the cupcake shop. Um, So that's what you're going to do while your students are mapping, right? Oh, absolutely. Because we're going to be mapping in the middle of town. You know, it's it's near the near the end of the semester. They need to prove themselves. So that's what we're going to (laughs) do. A lot of what we have to deal with too in Hot Springs is that there's a lot of vegetation. As yes, anyone that lives in uh, you know eastern Oklahoma, western Arkansas knows, and so that makes it hard to dig around and find some of these rocks. Yeah, there are surprisingly few uh, strike and dip measurements when you're not up on the mountains <laughs> and near the falls. Oh, yeah. On this <laughs> there map. really are. This is this is exactly why we contacted um, the geologist that made this map because we needed help. Um, <laughs> if you remember earlier this year, you know, I went there and scouted out the locations, but it it's hard to tell this incredibly complex structure and. Let me tell you, aerial photos taken in the middle of summer, no help at all. <laughs> no. And so I have to actually ask you, looking at this map as a geophysicist, uh, so I, I can recognize, you know, the normal strike and dip indicators that show the orientation and dip direction of the rocks, but there are these strike and dip indicators that have a, a hooked dip line that crosses the strike line and makes a little lobe. Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? <laughs> Um, so those are pretty vicious little guys, and that means that your beds are, when you have, you know, everything's laid down horizontally, 
And then when you start to compress them, as you would in a mountain building episode, they start to bend upwards, right? And so they can bend all the way up to where they're at 90 degrees, but then they can keep going. Overturned so those little hook beds. symbols, yeah. <laughs> those little hook symbols yeah. are beds that are overturned. As you started describing is... it, I vaguely remember doing that once on a field map. <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we've got a lot of this structure in Oklahoma. You don't see them very often, and it's very difficult to identify when you have an overturned bed if you just have this massive carbonate rock, which we're about to talk about. It's hard to tell which way's up. So um, this is some very complex structure in this area. It's quite impressive. If only we could get rid of all the trees and vegetation <laughs> to see it. I'm pretty sure the people that live there would not be a very big fan. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely true. So, well, so what are some of the rocks that you want to see when you're down here that are interesting for the students? Um, so... D during the time that you know these rocks are being deposited we were in a deep sea environment so a lot of what they've seen before sort of in the central and southern parts of Oklahoma they're going to see again some carbonate rocks that were deposited in the deep sea some shales the Stanley shale around there which actually produces hydrocarbons in some parts of Oklahoma um, so those are those are normal rocks but the one rock that you hear a lot about and, you know, if you go to the University of Arkansas, or we even take a few field trips out here, is the Arkansas Novaculite. And this one is sort of the, the famous rock of the Washita's because there's the Arkansas Novaculite and then there's the Novaculites that you can see in Oklahoma. And um, it's cool. The word Novaculite is a Latin word um, that means razor stone. <laughs> that sounds fun. I uh, yeah, I will say I have a piece of it here that I've sort of been um, playing with as we're recording um, that I collected on our trip out there, and I dropped it, and it was super scary because parts of it are really sharp, <laughs> really sharp. Um, but w what it is, it's just, Novaculite's just a variety of chert. Yeah, so this is basically a, a quartz variety, right? Right. So um, we call it cryptocrystalline because we like to make up words in geology. Um, <laughs> you could more easily say microcrystalline quartz, um, but cryptocrystalline is more fun to say. And so <laughs> this is just, um, you know, if you know anything about archaeology or if you live somewhere where there is chert, you know, you'll find a lot of Native American arrowheads made out of chert. And there are a lot of tools that are definitely made out of this novaculite, um, mostly because the way that you can cleave it. Um, it has this semi-conchoidal fracture. It's not cleavage, it's fracture. So it's just the way it fractures. And it makes like obsidian, it makes really, really sharp edges. Um, and it's because the quartz grains are so tiny, they're microcrystalline, they're really hard um, and interlocking very tightly. And so it makes these great tools. It's like when you break a piece of glass, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So glass would have sort of conchoidal fracture. And so chert has this semi-conchoidal fracture um, that makes it good for this. Um, and like I said, there's the Arkansas Novaculite, which we'll obviously see in hot springs. <laughs> and then there's the Washita Novaculite. And they're slightly different. And that's because of the different thermal regimes that were occurring during the Washita orogeny. Um, so you got some low-grade metamorphism. It kind of changed the chert you can see a lot of different varieties of the colors. I mean, they're mostly sort of white and gray, but there's black and all kinds of other um, inclusions in them too. And so it changes a little bit from the Oklahoma side to the Arkansas side. 
Yeah, and actually chert has been mined near hot springs for some industrial purposes. Right. So there's a Tripoli mine, so Tripolitic chert. <laughs> I know it gets confusing. It's all quartz, really, but we like to name it all kinds of things. I was like, now you're just making um, up words. I'm not. <laughs> that was actually on my student's midterm last year. It was tripolitic chert. Um, and it, it all has to do with the texture of how this quartz behave or how this quartz looks under it. Definitely under a microscope, you can tell this. Um, but that stuff is mined right outside of hot springs. And, you know, it's just like you said, John, it's used for a lot of industrial things, adhesives and stuff. It's kind of powdery and weird. And so they use it for all kinds of weird um industrial uses so not only has this rock been sort of used for thousands of years by the native americans you know we're still mining it today but that's not the only type of rock you're going to find in hot springs even though it's sort of one of the most abundant ones um i thought we'd talk about a different type that's a little less well known too so this is another fun word uh i left it for you (laughs) yeah (laughs) tufa exactly um, so now this one is a type of carbonate, and it has to do with springs as well. Um, so do you remember the the type of carbonate rock that forms in Turner Falls here in Oklahoma? That's a really cold spring that we have. So that's like uh, uh, travertine, right? Right, right. So this is another T word that forms in a similar environment. So this is tufa, and um, it doesn't form in hot springs. Um, travertine forms in hot springs. Um, tufa forms more in warm or ambient temperature springs. And so here in Hot Springs, Arkansas, there are a few of these springs. Remember earlier we said that there were like older thermal waters and then cool groundwater that mixed together. Um, so in some places you have formation of this tufa. And just like we talked about earlier, it's this uh, spring water is super saturated with respect to calcite. As it comes up to the surface, you get some changes in the partial pressures of CO2 and you get outgassing. And when you do that, you change the pH of the water. And as you do that, the water says, I don't like you anymore, calcite, get out of here. And it deposits in this weird sort of bubbly looking stuff it's really strange looking i mean travertine's really weird looking too and tufa has a lot more sort of bubbles in it and it's really porous it's this gross rotten looking rock um but that's what you get in some areas around hot springs is tufa and it's fun to say yes Uh, (laughs) so we will put (laughs) some links in the show notes to tufa and travertine pictures so you can see what the difference is uh yes yes exactly because it's very subtle um so those are the sort of rock types I wanted to highlight because they're both fun to say and they're kind of interesting. You don't find them in a lot of places. And so that's what we're going to be looking at on our field trip. Yeah. I'm curious to see how your field trip goes and how the urban mapping exercise goes for your students. (laughs) Uh, Yes. I don't think they really appreciate it or will appreciate it until years later, but such is life with teaching, I guess. You know, it's like when we did our first map here, uh, when I came up to Penn State, out near one of the the local dams, people were taking strike and dips on things that we would have laughed at mapping out west, you know, (laughs) laying down on the ground, kind of holding and eyeballing what the dip of this little piece of something sticking out of the bottom of the trail was. Yeah. You you get desperate (laughs) when it's all covered. Yeah, exactly. That's what, uh, yeah, we're not, we're definitely not used to that here. So it's going to be... 
they'll understand that whole mapping the fault by the spring boxes by the end of this weekend, I think. Right. <laughs> so, well, I guess that means until you get back from your trip that we can go to everybody's favorite segment of the show, Fun Paper Friday. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> so you picked this fun paper, and I have to say that you did an excellent job. <laughs> um. So in my searches, and I've been doing ex- administering oral midterms all last week which took up every second of my time for five days and it made me want to scream so that's what i searched and i found this cool <laughs> page uh this cool paper um from arnall at at all and it's called human screams occupy a privileged niche in the communication soundscape and it had a lot to do with sound waves so i thought you'd like it as well <laughs> yes absolutely so the idea is <laughs> When you hear a scream, you're instantly on high alert. And what about a scream versus uh, normal talking or, say, tones from musical instruments? Why does your brain instantly switch to this high alert mode? And what are the characteristics of the sound that cause it to do that? Um, this paper was so cool. And I'm super surprised. It's from 2015. Um, and it's in current biology. And I'm really surprised this hadn't been done before. So it was pretty neat. Um, they talk about a recently developed uh, system called the modulation power spectrum. And it's basically the acoustic space that everything we listen to occupies, right? Yeah. And so this is this is a little bit of a point that I don't think it's something totally new by any stretch of the imagination. This application of it's very interesting. But if you think of a tone, so just say some constant tone, like when you pick up a phone, the dial tone, that's a constant frequency and a constant volume. But if you were to modulate the volume, so leave the tone the same, but it goes wah, 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 like that, and the amplitude varies. That's amplitude modulation or a- right. AM. You know, think AM radio, very similar. Mm-hmm. So this uh, this modulation power spectrum is basically the the spectra of that modulation on top of what would be called the carrier wave. So it's just the, the spectra, not of the signal, but of the modulation of the carrier signal. Right. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. And so... They're saying that the modulations between regular speech and this danger scream speech is what is different. And that there aren't many things, well, I don't know if there's anything, that occupies that section that screams occupy. Yeah. And so they they looked at kind of the 30 to 150 hertz band in this modulation spectra and they had people screaming and saying different sentences, people just screaming in a sound booth in a lab, which had to be cathartic. Uh, Oh, I, that's, (laughs) that's all I thought reading the methods. I'm like, man, this had to be, I would have signed up for that in a second, even though they gave you the things to scream. So you couldn't just make something up. (laughs) Well, you know, you could, as long as you said what they wanted as well, probably. Yeah, Uh, that is true. (laughs) And so what they saw was when you were screaming, you, occupied a significantly larger chunk of this 30 to about 150 hertz band that indicated danger than when you were just speaking. Right. And it wasn't just speaking. It was, you know, increasing your loudness or your pitch as well. So it was very distinctive. The scream was very distinctive 
as opposed to both normal and sort of, you know, altered speech patterns as well. And so they say that there's a, you know, an ecological reason for this, which is pretty obvious, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but this is putting some putting some math to it. So we can understand, you know, why nothing else sort of occupies this area in our aural senses. And it's to save us from danger, essentially. But they went on further and didn't look at just screams. They started to look at artificial alarms as well. Yeah. And if you think about a, a klaxon, the, the, the yes. classic, <laughs> the, the reactor is about to blow up sound. <laughs> The uh, torpedoes coming, man your battle station sound. Yeah, or on an iPhone, it's known as just alarm. I think uh, <laughs> in your in your settings, that if you think about it, that is highly amplitude modulated. Mm-hmm. And we want, we want. Yeah. Right, though it is amplitude modulated relatively slowly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So maybe the klaxon's not the best example but it is a modulation of intense so the the delta volume per time is very high because it's on or it's off basically right and exactly that get, puts you on this heightened alert um and they wanted to see which makes sense so they wanted to see you know this is this is true for natural screams and this is true for artificial alarms but they also did some other modifications sort of to the test. Um, it was really interesting that they screamed in English, French, and Mandarin. And so the screams in whatever language still occupied that sort of section in that modulation power spectrum. Yeah, and then they even looked at musical instruments, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah. And because there are loud, I mean, well, there are changes in loudness, rapid change in loudness in music, and those rapid changes would have a lot of high frequency content if you're familiar with some signal processing theory. Uh, mm -hmm. But they saw a significant difference between dissonant and consonant sounds in music. Uh, yeah, which, I mean, makes sense because dissonant music makes you uneasy. That's the point of it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's, you create that dissonance when you're trying to create, you know, not a happy feeling. And so that was, that was really cool too. And then in addition to asking people, you know, how they feel about a sound or watching their response, I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to just, you know, play screams at people over loudspeakers in a sound booth. Yes. <laughs> um, but they also did some functional MRI measurements as well. Right, so maybe this is why they only had twenty participants to this part of the <laughs> of the experiment. So they rated the fear induced by the screams, you know, on this one to five scale. Um, <laughs> that was really interesting. I had a lot of fun thinking about what that would sound like. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it's really cool to think of in sort of a biological standpoint, as well as sort of all the signal processing that they did in this um in this paper because obviously they they also did some looking at the amygdala which is that thing that reptilian part of our brain right that induces stress and the fight or flight sort of area and that's what they compared this to yeah and so when you're hearing speech or sounds the auditory cortex which is not near the amygdala really at all is processing yeah. that but when you heard things that were high in content of this 30 to 100 hertz modulation spectra the amygdala fired and the auditory cortex was almost silent yeah 
That's um, that's really cool. <laughs> so if you're screaming at somebody, you're triggering the lizard brain, hence why they might be swinging at you, versus yeah. the auditory cortex. And not listening at all, which I know is tough if you have a six-year-old like I do, but <laughs> I'm going to try to remember this paper <laughs> and remember why he's not picking up my so- his socks when I yell at him. <laughs> right. So I thought this was a great finding, and we've also, we'll link in an article that's a little bit of a summary, but the PDF of the article is on ResearchGate, so you can actually get the full thing without being behind a paywall, which is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and... On the subject of Fun Paper Friday, I actually had the pleasure of meeting one of our authors of one of the fun papers that we've talked about when I was in New York. That is so awesome. Um, so this is the author of the smartphone fun paper that we talked about, and he said he was a fan of our show, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, this is when uh, we had Martin on, and Martin talked to us about this paper where they were looking at accelerometers and smartphones to try to provide advanced warning for earthquakes. And the lead author was Jing Kai Kong. And like I said, I got to talk to him at this conference I was recently at. Uh, and he sent us some feedback, other than saying that he enjoyed the podcast, which thanks for that, uh, that... <laughs> He thought that visualization was really important and was glad that we were emphasizing it and said that he'd heard a lot about D3, uh, which is, a, I think, a JavaScript a thing to do visualization and wanted to learn it. I've been in the same boat, uh, but getting time to learn it is hard. Uh, so he said that the figure that we talked about is from Matplotlib and Python because he's a loyal Python user <laughs> and doesn't like MATLAB. That made me very happy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> and he also pointed out, we talked about Quake Catcher. He said that's a Stanford project. And Angie Chung, who was the main designer, is now a postdoc working on earthquake early, early warnings with their team. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah. So that was a lot of fun. And I think at some point we're going to try to get that group on to talk a little bit more about this, uh, maybe over the summer for one of our summer shorts. Uh, sounds like a great plan. Um, I'm glad that uh, we didn't butcher his paper too badly, so that's wonderful to hear too. <laughs> yeah. So if you have anything that you would like to hear us talk about in terms of a fun paper, or if you happen to have authored one of our fun papers, uh, <laughs> we would love to hear from you. Or if you have any general uh, comments, questions, or concerns about the show. Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, you can send your TUFA pictures to show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. Or just put them out on the Twitter sphere. Um, John is at geo underscore Lehman. I am at Shannon Doolin. And together we are at Don't Panic Geo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.